You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I often wake up these days feeling kind of tired, as if I haven't really slept at all. There are, of course, many reasons for this. I could say that it's simply that we've reached the part of the season in southern Canada when we have the least amount of light. That would be true, but I'd have to add that the lack of light has greater metaphorical weight than literal merit. So, for example, the conflicts unfurling across the globe are absolutely heartbreaking, weighing heavily on most of us. But also what I perceive as a backlash against feminism, against the rights of women and trans BIPOC and LGBTQ communities. All you need to do is to return to my last episode with Catherine Hernandez to know what I mean. It's this sense of things that informed one of the reasons I reached out to writer and scholar Aaron Wonker, the author of a book I cherish very deeply, Notes from a Feminist Killjoy. We usually think of a killjoy as one who gets in the way of or sabotages other people's happiness, getting in the way of what someone else wants. Derived from the scholar Sarah Ahmed, the term feminist killjoy speaks to getting in the way of the patriarchy and understanding the important, arduous, and often alienating labor of intervening or undermining its mechanisms. In this provocative, deeply thoughtful, and pithy volume, Munker thinks about what being a feminist killjoy might look like and often does look like, what it means very specifically in her daily life, and how we might forge relationships that are sustaining to help us through the struggles for justice. I decided to interview Erin for this episode, so allow me to introduce you to her and to her work first. She's a settler scholar and a writer who lives and works in Magmagi. She's the author of Notes from a Feminist Killjoy, Essays on Everyday Life, which was published by Book Hug in 2016. And while she didn't mention it to me, I will share with you that this book received all kinds of accolades, including winner of the Atlantic Book Awards in 2017 and the winner of the East Coast Literary Awards in the same year and the Quill and Choir 2016 Book of the Year. And that's just to name a few. She has, before and since then, also published the Rutledge Introduction to 20th and 21st Century Poetry, edited and co-edited Public Poetics, published by Wilfrid Laurier in 2015, The Selected Poetry of Sina Karras, published in 2016, Refuse, Canlet and Ruins, published by Book Hug in 2018, and Avant Desire, a Nicole Brossard reader, published by Coach House in 2020. I'm delighted to report that she's also working on a new collection of nonfiction essays. Erin and I talk specifically about being a feminist killjoy, about its timeliness, 
seven years after the date of its first publication. This is my interview with Aaron Wonker. Hi, Aaron, and welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, Linda. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to have you here with me today. We've been talking about doing this interview for a while, so I'm pretty pumped about having the conversation with you. I thought we would just begin with the beginning. By this, I mean the title of the book, Mm. Notes from a Feminist Killjoy, Essays on Everyday Life. Some of our listeners won't know what you mean by feminist killjoy. So could we begin with what that is? Yeah, it's such a it's such a good question. And I have it on decent authority, at least from the Julie Andrews, that starting at the very beginning is a very good place to start. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Notes from a Feminist Killjoy, Essays on Everyday Life is a is not the title that the publisher wanted. And oh. it's a title that I'm really happy with. Initially, the publisher was really interested in calling the book something along the lines of the Feminist Killjoy Handbook, because for those who choose to read the the book that I've written, they'll know, or for those who haven't read it and, and decide to pick it up, they'll find out that it is deeply indebted to many thinkers one foremost among them is Sarah Ahmed. Mm-hmm. And Sarah Ahmed, at the time that I was working on the manuscript, was writing a blog called Feminist Killjoy. And in that blog, Ahmed is a, a former academic, very much a scholar, a thinker, a theorist, writer of many books. And at the time of writing this blog, she had recently left or was in the process of leaving her position at Goldsmiths College. Mm. And she was writing about that experience and also writing about her, her forthcoming book in blog form. So really doing this very kind of public thinking act. And the title of the blog was The Feminist Killjoy. And it was an evocative an evocative title and an evocative figure for me uh, and also extremely exciting for me at the time and still, but I think, you know, for me, Ahmed was one of the first people who was doing that kind of first draft thinking in a hyper public space, which mm-hmm. felt risky and generous. And so her figure of the feminist killjoy, who is someone who's deeply committed to intersectional feminism and who is engaged in, as Ahmed describes it, killing the joys of patriarchal culture. So Mm -hmm. uh, drawing attention to these so-called joys that are actually oppressive and hampering our collective thriving. Um, Mm -hmm. That's the work of the feminist killjoy. And that really is is the work that is one of the central interlocutors for my own thinking in this book. And I write a lot about Ahmed's writing because it helps me understand my own trajectory into intersectional feminism. The publisher that I was working with (laughs) um, at BookHug, they were really, you know, they were excited about this idea. The term feminist killjoy is brilliant and it's eye-catching and interesting and provocative. And they had the notion that maybe it would be called the Feminist Killjoy Handbook, which is a great title, but didn't feel comfortable to me because mm-hmm. I think centrally because of the article the as though it was the first one and <laughs> as, as though I was the one who had written the handbook when 
the actual book that I've written is a book that is in many ways a love letter and an homage to thinking along with other writers. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know, I don't feel really comfortable with this. What if I, I mean, Sarah Ahmed's email is on her blog. What if I email her? And so I did, and a, a correspondence ensued, which signals the generosity of Ahmed as a, as a thinker and a, and a, you know, a, a community engaged person. And she said, you know, oh, let me check with my publisher. I'm, I'm actually coming out with a book that has a title, a working title that's very similar to that. I don't mind so much. There should be many feminist Killjoy handbooks in the world, but let me just see. And she circled back and said, yeah, the publisher would prefer not to, not that these uh. things are copyrighted yet. And I said, I, there is absolutely no way that I want to, um, you know, I already felt uncomfortable. So great. And we came up with, between myself, my editor, Julie Justin, my publisher, and Sarah Ahmed, we came up with a title that felt more or less comfortable. Mm. And in a final act of stunning generosity, Sarah said, I'm really sorry about all of this. Can I, um, can I support your work in any way? Can I offer it a blurb or something like that? Yes, please. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) So that is, you know, that's how the title came about. It's kind of a long story, but it's a story to me that is indicative of the kind of generosity of thinking that Ahmed performs in both her intellectual and scholarly writing and in her everyday life. Thank you for that. That's a wonderful description of how the book has evolved. I was going to ask you about that as well. So you've actually answered two questions in one. I wanted to look at the figure of the feminist killjoy. I am going to loop back and ask you about the first draft thinking too. It was a term you just threw out and I love, I thought I'm going to come back to that. In the book, you define the feminist killjoy. You suggest the feminist killjoy behaves in this way. Lest we forget that being a feminist killjoy is also often risky. Lest we forget that the joys that need killing are the so-called joys of patriarchal culture lest we forget how much the world needs feminist killjoys. Mm. I underlined constantly when I was reading this book and then reading it again for the sake of this interview. And that, that to me captures the real difficulty or labor that is involved in being a feminist killjoy. Would you say that that holds true still now? I think it, for me, at least, it holds ever more true. You know, talk about first draft thinking. It, it didn't occur to me, and, you know, we can pick this thread up or not if it, if it is useful for you, uh, but it certainly didn't occur to me at the time that I was writing this book, which was a real step away from the kind of writing I had been trained to do, which was writing that circulated primarily and really exclusively in academic settings that anyone (laughs) would read it, you know, it was really, Mm. that's a bit naive, I recognize now, but at the time that I was writing it, it felt like an exercise in understanding my own thinking in conjunction with writers, thinkers, literary and otherwise that I had not admired enormously and felt challenged by enormously. And, and so as I was writing these lines, You know, the book was published, I believe the book launch happened the day after the 45th president of the United States was elected. Mm -hmm. So this is 
pre-huge surge of the Me Too movement as it erupted shortly after that. And so it this was me understanding through the thinking of others what a feminist killjoy as a figure needed to be and what it would actually mean or what it might mean to take up the challenge Mm -hmm. of acting as and inhabiting the mantle of a feminist killjoy it is I think consistently risky and and consistently necessary and you know we're seeing I'm seeing more and more evidence of both daily I couldn't agree more. I wanted to see what, or hear rather, what you thought. But I am thinking of my students whom I adore, who sometimes when I'm teaching a feminist theory class say, do we still need this? Haven't we gone past this? And then once I actually enter into the class discussion about the midway point in the term, students shift and realize, as you just suggested, we need this more than ever for all kinds of reasons. I was thinking when I read this book again, I was thinking of the podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. It's a podcast you once suggested to me in addition to another friend, Mel Hogan. So thank you both for introducing me to that. Is being a feminist killjoy, therefore, a hard thing, one of those hard things that we can do? How do we do it? I think so. I think that one of the pieces that I really appreciate about the work that the American feminists, Glennon Doyle uh, and her compatriots do on that podcast is to perform the difficulty of intersectional feminism from their positionality. All three of them, Glennon, her sister and her partner are all white cis women and they mm-hmm. talk, uh, they use their platforms to to talk about their, their subjective and identity positioning in the world and they make mistakes and then talk about those mistakes. So I, I don't, nobody's perfect. And I, I don't, I don't see their podcast as an example of, of perfection in any way, but what I appreciate about that podcast, we can do hard things is the way, first and foremost, the way in which they will take difficult ideas and unpick them to understand them while also simultaneously recognizing that part of the difficulty sometimes of their understanding may come from their own different privileges that they're also starting to recognize at different moments. Mm. And so what a nice segue into asking the question is being a feminist killjoy a hard thing that we can do. I think yes. And the the we in the can we do it is always going to be dependent on who feels called in or invited into that space of 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 collectivity. Right. And anytime we feels like an inhospitable space, especially when we're talking about feminist action, feminist collective action, that is a really important time to pause. Mm-hmm to try to understand why someone may not feel welcome into that space. And if that lack of welcome or that, that sort of reticence is in any way, because I realize this is actually a podcast and people can't see me. I am a white cis presenting woman. Right. And so if my using of the term feminist killjoy feels inhospitable because it reveals 
some lack in myself that I'm not recognizing in my own unearned privilege, that's a time for me to pause and learn and recognize that I've made a mistake and make amends for it and reorganize. There are other times where people may not feel welcome into the difficult uh, work of being a feminist killjoy. And that is because they are bumping up against their own discomfort with the thing that intersectional feminism requires, which is equity and justice. Exactly. Uh, And that is difficult. (laughs) That's difficult work. It is. It is. Sometimes I think that because something doesn't feel good, people think that it's not the right thing to do. Feelings aren't always a reliable guide, especially in terms of being a feminist killjoy. Our feelings can't be relied upon. And that's the hard work of knowing when our feelings are not accurate, are not gauging the situation and oblige us to reconsider and rethink, for example, the kinds of privilege that we might enjoy or not. Yes. And one of the things I've been thinking about extremely recently, you know, thinking about feeling, being in the midst of so many very difficult, really important feelings, grief, horror in our current moment, again, in different ways, being in these deeply difficult feelings is vital. And one of the things that I find myself also thinking about is how I, from my own positionality, can experience and learn from those feelings, right? Mm. Grief and horror, I think, are, are reasonable reactions to things that are happening in the world. Mm. And what what kinds of difficult feelings allow us to then move to the next stage of action and service to the cause of justice? And what kinds of, you know, when are our feelings keeping us from working in that in that project of collective liberation? So yes. if I get too stuck in, oh, I don't feel good this is uncomfortable to me, that, that is a red flag that I actually need to stop and check myself and, and check in with other people and, yes, and, yes. and learn from that. Right. So sometimes my feelings, especially when I am feeling ashamed or, or, or something that is holding me back from, from acting in service of, of the vital project of, of collective justice, then those feelings need, they're good information, but they're not serving me. They need to, I need to understand them. And then there are other times where our difficult feelings are exactly what motivate us into action or into conversations that, that get us cared for enough to be able to take action, whatever that might look like for each person. Yeah. Productive action, I think. So your book invites us into these kinds of spaces, into collective action, into ruminative thinking. The other thing that it does is it invites allyship and friendship. Mm. So there's an entire chapter devoted to that. I thought it was so interesting that on the one hand, you're calling for or remarking upon or reflecting on how friendship is really key, but also at the lack of vocabulary for it. So I'm just going to turn to your book so that readers will know, what is she talking about? This is what I'm talking about. At one point in the book, you say this. One of the things I feel most certain of these days is that the feminist killjoy can't go it alone. She needs friends. 
She needs a supportive network. She needs allies. She needs respite from the work of killing joy and making a world. But then just before that, you say, what is it about female friendship that inspires such insipid descriptors? I struggle to find a collective noun that fits my friends without itching in its not quite right fit. My girls, too infantilizing. My crew, I don't row, so. My gal pals, sounds like a condition. My tribe, too new age appropriative. My bitches, just no. <laughs> With humor and grace, you're checking in with all of the words that we have that are inadequate to the task. So we need this thing, but we don't have a vocabulary for it. Why do you think that is? It's funny to hear things that I've written with some space and time. I, I think I might write that list differently now. Um <laughs> You know, because, and I, I can say why, the, at the time that I wrote this, the child that is mine wasn't speaking yet, didn't, uh, and didn't have any um, gendered identification or anything like that. And now I'm around kids who are eight years old, and I see them have different names for one another and, and friendship. And there's there's a comfort and a vocabulary that is different than the ones that I have. And I I, I feel like I agree with what I've said there, uh, <laughs> but only from my own position again, you know. So for some people, I think I think that some of those names work and and in other cases, they absolutely could never work for me. I think that I think that finding a vocabulary for the kinds of ways that feminists care for one another, that friendship can function and does function as not an alternative family, but a family. The way that friendship is vital to imagining and dreaming different and better futures. That's not something that I, that mm. I grew up with. And I think it's, mm. I think that is probably not true for other people. I think other people, I have models, I have friends who grew up in communities and networks where there was a far more expansive understanding of, of kinship networks. For me, that was not the case. And so I've, I've come to it late. And so I think that my vocabulary and my thinking through vocabularies is in part marked by my own trajectory. And then also, of course, marked by the, the context in which I have come to the age and, and stage that I am now, which is mm -hmm. to say, you know, through the particular contours of patriarchy that were the 90s and early 2000s. Mm -hmm. where there was a really limited vocabulary in, in particular ways. And I think that, you know, for me, a word person who spends a lot of time with books, finding the words to explain to myself and explain what I, what I see and what I feel becomes a, 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 another way of processing the, the world as I'm moving mm -hmm. through it. And so this is a bit of a, a kind of an all over spider web of an answer. Um, but I think that not only is there a paucity of vocabulary around the absolute magic that is friendship, 
mm-hmm. um, and friendship between different networks of people, women, queer people, kinship networks that create new new modes of of filial relation, you know, like all of it. I think that that is that that's such a vital part that we need for not only understanding where we are, but, but where we might go, you know, it's both a kind of a backward looking, oh, here's how I can understand different parts of my life or different parts of history. But you know, what is, what is the future? What could the future look like without having a map for that future? I think that having more language for Mm. friendship and, and more structures that, that give materiality and contourship and, and, and recognition for the, the vital roles that friendship plays in not only collective action, certainly, but individual survival is pretty important to me, at least. I felt that from your book. I felt that it it gave it that kind of recognition and showed its importance in sustaining networks that would then combat those situations where the feminist killjoy must also work. So I was thinking about Betty Friedan's The Problem That Has No Name. I thought this is a secondary problem. Mm. That there isn't a word for the forms of kinship that are vital to combating oppression in its various forms. I like so many parts of the book to say that I like this part of the book is to not do justice to the rest of what you're doing. So let's turn to the rest of the book. And I I wanted to also speak to the way that you write. It has a, a really interesting format and feel. You're talking about the kind of draft thinking So on the one hand, it appears to be formatted like a series of scholarly essays. The table of contents would suggest that. But there are these aphoristic nuggets or poetic fragments throughout that offer us real hard truth. So why did you choose to write it this way? What a generous description. (laughs) (laughs) Um. I, what you've articulated, that kind of polarization between the academic essay and the aphoristic or poetic fragment, it feels generous to me first because my training and my current work is within the institutional space of a university. Mm. And that is where primarily I was trained to write or learned how to write. And it was a, it was a slow process. Any, any professors of my early through my PhD years would, would readily say I was not one of those people for whom you receive a paper to mark and think, Oh, wonderful. I'm going to be blown away by this crystalline, beautiful, polished prose. I was a, (laughs) I was a, an uncomfortable writer, a self-conscious, awkward writer, and and often still am, I think. Thoughtful. Thoughtful is the word that comes to mind for me. (laughs) Getting generous. Um, You know, I I use commas like they're salt. Uh, (laughs) And then, and then go to, go to teach uh, undergraduate students writing instruction and how to, how to use punctuation correctly. But what you've identified is on the one hand, the place where my writing really was trained and my understanding of how to think in a public enough space, an essay that is, you know, in Canada, most of our institutions are public institutions. 
the idea, as I understand it, is that we produce research so that we can circulate our thinking in a shared discursive space with the time and the imperative to think carefully about what has been written. So on the one hand, I feel a, a fidelity and a, a love or a respect for the form of the academic essay because it's a slow form. I learned very quickly on various forms of social media that I am not a gifted short form thinker and it, by any stretch of the imagination. I deeply respect people who were able to, back when Twitter was Twitter, create those <laughs> Twitter essays that did, you know, and it's happening on TikTok and, you know, all different sorts of social media spaces now where they're, they're able to work within the, the format, the constraint of the format and produce something brilliant. I'm not a short form thinker. I'm a drafty thinker. And I don't think that the many of the platforms that circulate quickly right now are, are built for the kind of way that my, my brain processes things. Mm. And on the other hand, the poetic fragment both speaks to my deep love of poetry and what I've come to understand as the, the fragmented essay form. Mm. And then the very material conditions of my life at the time that I was writing this book, which was I was late for a deadline and I had an infant and there were very few sustained hours. <laughs> there were fragments of time. And that is what I learned to write in, which really pushed against my understanding as a graduate student of like, clear the decks and the calendar, I'm going to do nothing but write for the next mm. seven days. Well, that just didn't exist anymore. So it's a, it's an oscillation between ideology and form things that I was trained on things that I like, and then bumping up against the maybe the the, the fluxus idea of life as art and art as life, <laughs> the very <laughs> material constraints of, of, of early parenthood. Yeah. I love that the form expresses a kind of materialist feminist life. It does cross over from academic essay into philosophy, into poetry. And you call upon some of my favorite thinkers. Sarah Ahmed is one of them. I'm going to put some links in my show notes for the listeners. Also, Catherine McKinnon, who I find a, a powerhouse, really, um, in terms of her thinking. In terms of the structure, I'm going to read the chapter so that the listeners can hear. There's an introduction, there's a preface, which we'll come to at the end. There is then chapter one, notes on rape culture, chapter two, notes on friendships, chapter three, notes on feminist mothering, feminist mothering, not smothering, in case it sounded like that, and postscript sometimes <laughs> <laughs> refusal is a feminist act. Would you add other chapters now? How would you approach it now? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't I don't think that I would change anything now because the book to me feels like such a such a core sample of exactly where I was in my life and the context of my networked life at the time, mm. right? And and as you will know, as a as a keen and generous reader, one of the ways that I start 
thinking about how to write this book within the book. So the kind of the meta (laughs) sort of positionality of the book is through understanding situated knowledge, which is understanding yourself in relation to your context and how you know what you know. And when I was writing this book in 2015 um, and into the early parts of 2016, I was recognizing, you know, I was bumping up against the material conditions of my own changing life. I was at the time precariously employed, like so many of us mm-hmm. uh, are or have been. Mm-hmm. And that very real condition of trying to trying to find stable employment in fields that um, that, you know, speak to your strengths and training that are very difficult to get into. Mm. I was a new parent and throughout the course of the writing of this book, some fairly massive for me, or at least in my own context, rupture events happened or had just happened, Mm. you know, recently, not so many years prior to writing, I don't know more shifted everything in the, in the, you know, in this part of Turtle Island where I live and right across it, as I was writing the chapter notes on, on rape culture, Giango Meshi made a really strange Facebook post and then, right. And then all of that unfolded the way that it unfolded. And, you know, this was, it's not as though, I mean, we know that Tarana Burke had, created the the um the moniker me too far before it had its sort of global awareness moment but this was just before that you know this was just mm. leading up to all of these things and so i don't i don't think that i would change the book because as much as i might like to <laughs> because <laughs> it is such a you know it is such a true kind of snapshot of mm-hmm. where I was in space and time at the time of writing it. You know, would I would I love to go back and revise the, the chapters and no. make them stronger no. and more complex? Yes. <laughs> no. I wondered if there were more issues that had come to the fore so that you would add other chapters. That's actually what I was thinking about. Are there other chapters you might add now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the feminist killjoy needs to and has been all around the world. And there are many thinkers far more steeped in this thinking than I am, but Mm. um, thinking around allyship and support and protection of trans people. Mm. That's a chapter that I would love to write in a different iteration, ideally in collaboration, Mm. you know, with somebody. I think that chapters on allyship and and reckoning with um, what my brilliant friend and colleague Ajay Parasaram, who's a writer and a professor in uh, in the university where I teach as well. He and his collaborator, Alice, Alex Kaznavish, call frequently asked white questions. I think reckoning <laughs> with whiteness would be, you know, more directly head on in this book would be mm. something that I absolutely would want to do and need to do. Uh, you know, I do a little bit of that, but I think one can never reckon with one's own whiteness too much. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I think that there are certainly more chapters that I would love to write. And I think that they they would more properly belong in another book. Thank you for that. Tell me, 
what it was like when you published it. What was the response like from the young persons out there who were reading this book and responding to what you had said? I mean, I don't mean to to demure or be coy or glib in any way, but I was really not expecting much of a readership. And I think that that is very much a product of having having been trained in an academic environment where, you know, if three or four people come to your conference <laughs> panel, you're feeling pretty good. <laughs> and if you publish a peer-reviewed article and you've got a couple of citations, because it's the humanities, right, as opposed to other disciplines, you're feeling pretty good. So I think that I think that that's actually where my where my mindset was coming from. And people wanted to talk about this book. People wanted to, I think it was an opportunity. I think that Sarah Ahmed's concept, I was just a door opening to that to say, here, look, look at these other people doing this thinking. And so I I felt surprised and delighted by the ways in which readers wanted to talk about it and colleagues were willing to bring it to their students and talk about it in classroom spaces because my you know my favorite part about writing the book and what remains sort of my my favorite part about the book as a whole is is the work that it does to gather to cite other thinkers to say you, you know this might be new to me this might be new to you this might be new, but there's a, you know, we're not alone. There are many other people who have been thinking in these ways for a long time. And even if we don't get to meet them in person, we have the opportunity to read and think with them in their work. And so it was, ex- it, it was exciting. It remains exciting when people say that they've read this book. So, mm-hmm. you know, so many years on, um, <laughs> we're still reading I, it, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it just, you know, it's to your earlier question of, is it, do we still need the figure of the feminist killjoy? Absolutely. It seems so, it seems so obvious to me that I even hate to pose the question, but I think about how I've had students recently say to me, I don't understand why we still need to study feminist theory and what feminism is. And I think, well, because as Catherine McKinnon would say, we swim in sexism like fish in water, just because you can't see it doesn't mean that we're not steeped in it. We are. Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the many things that studying the present and past of any oppressive condition does for us is to attune our senses to the cues that it's on the rise again. I mean, nobody asks, why do we need to study fascism, right? We need to study fascism because like sexism and racism, it is ever present and on the rise. And we need to be, we need to be on the lookout and ready and ready to work and have tools at hand to name it. And in naming it, develop a a way to to combat it and dismantle it and that is constant work the wonderful news is that we'll never get bored doing this work (laughs) no we will not (laughs) we may we may get tired um (laughs) we will definitely need those friends and that respite and the opportunities to hold each other in retreat and reorganization but we'll never be bored no Erin, I have one last thing to ask of you, if you 
wouldn't mind indulging me. Of course. (laughs) The opening of the book is a letter to your daughter. Mm -hmm. And I felt that the last section that's written in italics, I felt that this passage at the end of the preface could really be addressed to any of the young persons out there who are struggling with issues of identity and their body and so forth. I wondered if I could ask you to read it. Do you have the book at hand? You don't. All right. Do you mind if I read it? I would love that. Okay. So you can hear your own words reflected back to you. And I I wanted my listeners to hear this. This is Erin Wonker writing to her daughter. May you be comfortable in your body and know it is yours. If your body doesn't fit you, may we find ways to make it yours. May your body only know pleasure and empowerment. May we give you the language to say yes, to say no. May the world be gentle with you. May you not lose that unselfconscious you-ness we hear from your crib when you wake up singing. May you know the fierceness of strong friendships with women. May you be kind. May you feel held. May you write your own stories. Erin Wunker, thank you for joining me on Getting Lit with Linda. Oh, what a gift to get to talk and think with you and um, and with your listeners. Thank you for taking the time and, and thank you to listeners for taking the time. I think that the space that you create to think in this format in a live but shareable way with other people is one of the many tools that we need to do the work that so desperately needs to be done. So thank you to you. Thank you, Erin. Thank you. And that was my interview with Erin Wunker. We have one more episode left for the 2023 season to be released on December 15th, 2023. And then we'll take a break before we begin season five coming in 2024. Thank you as always for listening, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.